the reason Felix Ravison is worth studying is because in his work we find a confluence of themes from Aristotle, debates in 18th and 19th century French vitalism, or spiritualism as it was called then, and a foreshadowing of European philosophy in the 20th century. Ravisson himself was born in Namur, Belgium, then France, in 1813. He died in 1900. Ravisson was not an academic in the sense we might now use the term, as in he was not primarily a lecturer implied in a university. Rather, he was a senior administrator of French public libraries and later became the Inspector General of Higher Education. So, I suppose, a senior civil servant. Latterly, he became a curator at the Louvre in the 1870s. He was, as a scholar, more than anything, a historian of philosophy. Although we are more interested in his original contributions to vitalism, his most well-known works of the time were on the history of philosophy. Works such as Essay on Aristotle's Metaphysics, French Philosophy in the 19th Century, which was 1867, that's recently been translated as it happens, and The Philosophy of Pascal, 1887. His original philosophy can certainly be detected in these engagements with key figures in the history of philosophy, but his most significant work is found in the published doctoral thesis of 1838, Sur l'habitude, or of habit, and the long article, Metaphysique et morale, 1893, so Metaphysics and Morals. We will focus here on the essay of habit, taking up themes of being, time and space, and the formation of habit as consequences of an active and passive principle, or the double law of habit, as Ravisson calls it. Part 1. The Metaphysics of Habit In Of Habit's opening pages, we see Ravisson make the following claim, and I quote, Habit, in the widest sense, is a general and permanent way of being. The state of an existence considered either as the unity of its elements or as the succession of its different phases. An acquired habit is the consequence of a change, but what we especially intend by the word habit, which is the subject of this study, is not simply acquired habit, but habit that is contracted owing to a change with respect to the very change that gave birth to it. These opening lines, then, draw a quiet distinction. Ravisson speaks of habit in the wider sense, and he talks also about acquired habit. On one hand, Ravisson speaks about the state of an existence, and on the other, he talks about how habit is a consequence of a change. The latter is the core issue of habit takes up. So, in one sense, he is talking about the conditions which make possible anybody, but more specifically, he wants to explain how ways of beings are acquired in nature. More abstractly, Ravisson wants to explain the conditions under which any being appears to us. And these are the conditions of space and time, transformation and stability. Such conditions are universal in their applicability. As he puts it, and I quote again, the universal law, the fundamental character of a being, is the tendency to persist in its way of being. The conditions under which being is represented to us in the world are space and time. Space is the condition and the most apparent and 
elementary form of stability, of permanence, time is the universal condition of change. The simplest change, and the most general, is also that which is relative to space itself, namely, movement. Space is the aspect of a habit which allows it to remain the same. Time, then, is the aspect which allows it to change. A habit, then, is what Ravison calls an extended mobile, a term he uses to describe the general character of body. Bodies are mobile in that they move, and bodies are also extended in that they take up space or remain the way that they are. A habit, then, is a state or a disposition towards or put another way, it is an inclination to. While all of nature lies along one vital continuum, habits are relatively particular. Why, though? Well, habits are a consequence of a change. Each living being draws support and sustenance in its own way in direct proportion to its environment or context of involvement. Living bodies are, by virtue of being both a distinctive stability as well as the capacity to transform and adapt as needed or individuation as medieval theologians put it what makes a living being the living being that it is which is to say what makes it distinct is the relational process of its body exchanging experience with its immediate world whilst remaining simultaneously distinct within itself the material world in and of itself though is in some sense dehabituated. Habits can't really take hold in the purely material world, since laws of nature are settled. Habits, on the other hand, are novel and spontaneous. Ravison remains the quintessential vitalist. His account of habit is founded on a strict demarcation of the organic and inorganic. As he states unambiguously, and I quote, habit is not possible within this empire of immediacy and homogeneity that is the inorganic realm. Thus, a mechanistic and materialist account of habit is ruled out from the start. This is not to say matter does not affect organisms, only that it is not primary. Matter is inert, therefore dead, and exists in a homogeneous inorganic space. This is the world of Newtonian laws, of absolute time and space, Life in nature must transcend that. Habit allows passage between the inanimate and animate, between ideal and material, and between mind and the body. Both organic life and inorganic matter are mutually transformed through their engagement with each other, with habit animating inert matter. The basic point is that habit, for Ravisson, allows the opening of matter to the activity of life. The domain of habit, then, is truly the natural world. Habit dictates the activities of how things live in that world. The philosophical consequence of the primacy of habit is that the development and contractions of habit repudiates explanations of life as subordinate to either mechanism and freedom, or free will and determinism, as they are sometimes called. Why might this be the case? Well, the idea is that nature... Organic life is the limit of habit, as Ravisson puts it, and I quote, In descending gradually from the clearest regions of consciousness, habit carries with it light from those regions into the depths and dark night of nature. Habit is an acquired nature, a second 
nature that has its ultimate ground in primitive nature, but which alone explains the latter to the understanding. The extended mobile of habit then flows in a connected and continuous development through all the different forms of sensate life from will and cognition to instinct. There is a clear hierarchy in operation here. The lower parts progress to higher powers of consciousness. The lower forms of life, such as organic life and its constituents, are only reduced in intensity from the higher form of life in intelligence. Beneath the lower forms of life is matter. When things are only matter, the principle of habit is no longer really in operation as no new life can emerge, something that the evolutionary theorists would object to. Thus, though, habit is the continuity of the whole spectrum from upper to lower, as Ravisson claims. Ravisson's essay itself moves in from the general logic of life to life-specific ways, or the ways living beings contract habits. In fact, early in the text we find Ravisson giving us a definition of habit. He says that habit is a change that endures. What might he mean by this? In his own words, with the exception of change that brings something from nothing into existence or from existence to nothingness, all change is realized in time. And what brings a habit into being is not simply change understood as modifying the thing, but change understood as occurring in time. Habit has all the more force when the modification that produced it is further prolonged or repeated. Habit is thus a disposition relative to change, which is engendered in a being by the continuity or the repetition of this very same change. Notwithstanding the theological entities that are immune to change, all change is actualized in time. We should be careful here. As he says, habit is not to be understood as just modifying a thing. For example, where one thing changes into another, or for example, where we change the properties of an object, like burning a white cotton ball into ash. Rather, he has a more subtle understanding of change, where change is that which is occurring to the thing as it exists. Habit is conditioned on change insofar as that change becomes continuous, or the same. Again, a habit is a change that remains the same. A habit introduces a change, which, if prolonged, contributes to the existence of the form of life. If the change does not radically alter the organism, then it moulds the organism's receptivity to the world as well as consequently shaping its purposive relation to the world. Living beings acquire habits. This means that their passive relation to the world, the immediate receptivity of sensations from their environment, continually develops forms of spontaneity which allows organic life to triumph over their material being. Again, we should be careful. Ravison is not denying the power of causality, rather he is expanding our understanding of how causality operates. Hence a habit is certainly, in the first instance, a result of a change, a consequence of a change. It is the result of the introduction of an impression. However, that effect too becomes a causal power, as it sustains and prolongs a new situation. This is what makes life what it is. The metaphysics of habit demonstrates the predominance of spontaneity over receptivity, since all forms of life initiate and endure change. Ravisson claims 
there is a double law of habit present in living beings. Part 2. The Double Law of Habit The more a change or an effect is prolonged, the more frequent the action and reaction dull the impressions we receive from the external world. This means that we become less aware of impressions, since our habits operate prior to any cognitive ownership we have over them. The more we acquire a habit, the more a habit congeals in us, the less receptive we are to the world around us, in a sense. This state is not to be limited, mind. Indeed, it is a critical requirement for our ability to navigate the world. In human terms, our habits become our second natures. They make us the characters we are. We are nothing more than the continual formation of change and sameness. The double law of habit, then, put as simply as I can, states that where habits are concerned, passivity diminishes when activity increases. Conversely, when passivity grows, activity decreases. Those of us who have lost the ability to speak a language will be familiar with the latter and the expression use it or lose it. Habit, then, operates at the intersection of activity and passivity. Ravison claims, and I quote, everywhere, in every circumstance, continuity or repetition, that is, duration, weakens passivity and excites activity. In biological terms, the formation of habit occurs along a continuum from plant to animal to conscious human life. The double law of habit shows how life is both action and reaction, activity and passivity at one and the same time. Ravison himself provides a succinct description of the double law in terms of passions and actions. And I quote, The continuity or the repetition of passion weakens it. The continuity or repetition of actions exalts and strengthens it. Prolonged or repeated sensation diminishes gradually and eventually fades away. Prolonged or repeated movement becomes gradually easier, quicker and more assured. Perception, which is linked to movement, similarly becomes clearer, swifter and more certain. What is significant about the double law of habit, then, is that the prolongation of changes fades into a second nature. The initial new, novel, surprising impressions fade to a point where we're no longer cognizant of them or we're no longer aware of them. That this is applicable to seeming opposites should reveal the force of Ravison's claim. Both pain and pleasure, fear and love, anger and placidness can be integrated in our character to such a degree that we normalise them to the point where we do not notice them, even slightly. That this happens shows how habit predominates the constitution of our character. There is also another consequence worth noting here. The more we become accustomed to certain practices, the easier they become. Development of a skill, say, learning a musical instrument, becomes a second nature to us, where frequent repetition of the action of playing the guitar or the piano or the instrument becomes easier. This logic can be extended to our relations to the world at large. The more we practice certain changes, the more the required effort diminishes to such a degree that it becomes easy. Habits are in the habit of overcoming resistance. Ravisson's examples are instructive in showing how he understands habit. Ravisson speaks of the connoisseur drinker. The sensations, say, of a binge drinker are wholly devoted to consuming alcohol in whatever form it comes in. 
and binge drinkers are thus wholly enthralled to the experience of indiscriminate and successive impressions. Here, there is no repetition of the sensation of any beverage. There is only a taste of far indiscriminate impressions. The connoisseur, on the other hand, is the one who actively discriminates between impressions, thereby introducing a repetition of change into the consumption of alcoholic drinks. The repetition of change dims the experience of innumerable sensations or impressions, allowing the connoisseur to habituate herself to the nuances of different alcoholic beverages and thereby developing a more nuanced appreciation of the drink. Over the span of a life, she develops something like an instinct for wine, say. Or put colloquially, we say in English, someone has a nose for something. That is, they have the developed an ability or a talent for discernment. Another example further demonstrates this pattern. Ravison speaks of a child rocking to sleep in a cradle. The child becomes habituated to the rhythm of rocking movements and sounds which lulls them to sleep. The repetition of rocking and squeaking creates a sameness or a continuum of different impressions. That in turn creates a relatively harmonious equilibrium. The introduction of noise radically breaks this temporary unity, which in turn awakes the sleeping child. You might very well ask, what are the differences between habits and instincts? It's a good question. Instincts, after all, seem to share certain salient features with the way Ravison describes habit. An instinct is involuntary, they are not immediately cognitive, and they have a purposiveness of their own. That is, they move towards certain ends. For example, I move my hand towards the end of swatting away the fly that landed on my neck. I do this immediately without any cognitive input with a view to reaching a particular objective. So, what is the difference between habits and instincts? Well, for Ravison, there is no clear demarcation between habits and instincts. A habit is really an instinct that has taken hold, or an instinct that is no longer immediate but prolonged. The difference is one of degree rather than of kind. As Ravison puts it, and I quote, habits draw increasingly near to perhaps without ever attaining the reliability, necessity and perfect spontaneity of instinct. Between habit and instinct, between habit and nature, the difference is merely one of degree, and this difference can always be lessened and reduced. Habit, then, are instincts which develop the necessity of instincts into spontaneous tendencies, or dispositions, or habits. The double law of habit demonstrates how our perception of passive sensations over time recedes, while action will mould our impressions through practice. However, as Ravison states in the opening remarks of his essay, he is not concerned with specific habits. Habit is not just the instinctive things we do, such as smoking, chewing gum, fidgeting with our devices, or leaving the toilet seat up, whatever. Habit exists because it is the consequence of a change. For Ravison, and I quote, what we especially intend by the word habit, which is the subject of this study, is not simply acquired habit, but habit that is contracted, owing to a change with respect to every change that gave birth to it. There are two points that we can draw from this general definition. Firstly, habit defines the relative unity of a body in the face of the content of its successive phases. Secondly, this alerts us to what Ravison takes to be the essential mutual implication of change and permanence in the constitution of habit. 
there is a certain contingency to how habits form. Habits come and go, and thus they only have a temporary unity. Such a description corresponds to our everyday understanding of habit. We think of habit as things that are picked up, which can stick around, but which are ultimately reversible. The degree to which habits are reversible varies, of course, but in principle we think that even the most ingrained habits can be overcome with the right amount of application. So the question then is, does our habits make us free? Part 3. Spontaneous Life Habit is, as he puts it, Ravison's middle term. Habits are activities uniting the different poles of mind and matter, spirit and mechanism, free will and determinism, rationalism and empiricism, and idea and actuality. As well, habits are the activity which makes possible the exchange and transmissions of the activities of these seemingly different poles. What, though, are the cognitive consequences of this undermining of dichotomies? What does it really mean for our understanding of what it is to be a human being? Well, our cognitive activities, our desires, our acts of will, even what could be considered passive mental content, are taken in and transformed in tandem with the habitual body. Habit is the act of transitioning between the two states of will and body. As Ravasan himself says, the dividing line is everywhere and nowhere. This evocative poetic phrase tells us how consciousness is. This is to say that consciousness is the activity of exploration and creation itself. True, a continuous, what Ravison calls gradation and degradation, consciousness runs back and forth between the will and the body. In fact, the separation no longer makes any sense. We are simply habits all the way up and all the way down. As mentioned, Ravison says that in descending gradually from the clearest regions of consciousness, habit carries with it light from those regions into the depths and dark night of nature. Here, habit is revealed as the place, the milieu of what we are. In fact, that is what we are, a milieu of embodied intelligence across cells, organs, limbs, skin and mind. Again, we can see how Ravasan gives us a classic expression of vitalism. Intelligence is necessary for the activating of our material life. Consciousness is thus not something disinterested. In contrast, it is interested and very much in the midst of things. Of course, our deliberate awareness bears witness to all the habitual processes which constitute us. Our consciousness did is the seat of a fundamental paradox. We are both movement and stillness. As Ravasan says, this passage is movement the movement that I accomplish whilst being immobile at the heart of my identity. Here, Ravasan starts to sound a lot like Leibniz. The soul, the I, the self, is an incorrupted whole, a whole that flows around all the habitual changes over time. Our understanding is active, voluntary, and synthesizes all the movements of the habitual milieu that I am. Simply put, Consciousness is purpose of action itself, an action that unites all the habits, capacities and powers that make me whole. Consequently, through habit, any separation of will and nature is eliminated to the point of non-existence. It is through habit that our interior life is made explicit as drives, tendencies, actions, desires. The act of movement which constitutes us is the idea, but what we need to understand is that Ravison is explaining how for the human being, ideas are ends. The end of movement is an idea. 
as he says, an ideal to be accomplished, something that should be, that can be, and which is not yet. The image that Ravison uses to explain the spontaneity and sheer vitality of our conscious life is the spiral. According to Ravison, on one end of the spiral we have inorganic matter, the world of determined causation, or destiny, as Ravison calls it. On the other end, at the peak of our nature, is deliberative freedom and intelligence. Habit continually spirals between one and the other, and by doing so reveals their irreducible connection. The spiral's principle resides in the depths of nature, and yet which ultimately flourishes in consciousness. Ravasad will go on to explain the theological origins of the mysterious spiral. The spiral is a consequence of what he calls prevenient grace. The ultimate origin of the spiral is the creative spark of the divine within us. The vitalist implications should, though, be clear. The origin of all our life in nature is habits aspiring to grace, and grace is the ultimate expression of freedom. Remember, habits are not simply mechanisms. Automized behaviour are simply the result of causal processes. Habits are not just ticks and foibles, although these two could be habits. But Ravisod wants to build ground-level material to give us a much more expansive and significant sense of how habits work. Habits are entwined with our freedom. This is somewhat counterintuitive, I acknowledge, as posed. Why on earth would habits enable us to be free? Surely habits are those things which constrain us and tie us down to untaught patterns and behaviours. Or, in the words of Samuel Beckett, habit is the ballast that chains a dog to his vomit. In contrast, Ravasad's idea of habit is that it is the necessary condition of our freedom. Habit is how we accommodate ourselves to change and continually, if gradually, accommodate ourselves to changing ourselves. This means that our life is inherently spontaneous, which in turn means that it is only determined in very specific ways. Our habits can certainly lead us astray and we can flounder, but habits are also the means through which we can shape and mould ourselves towards our own emancipation. Habit is freedom, really, and habits account for the coming to life of experience, not the deadening of experience into a callous matter. In conclusion, Ravison provides us with a sophisticated, impactful, and oddly concentrated classic expression of vitalism. Habit elevates us above matter and helps us make sense of our embodied and material life. Habit, as we stated at the outset, is a generally and permanent way of being. Habits are the things which individuates forms of life. Habit belongs to a life, which is to say, they name the changes that endure to make our natural and sensuous life expressive. As such, our habits ensure we are beings that are purposive rather than unended. Habits are the creative stage which orient our existing material life, the genesis of that life towards their peculiar not yet. And that not yet, whatever it might be, is the most important part of being human. Habits, as the dilation and prolongation of changes, ensure that beings, human, animal, plant, pursue their unique manner of creation. Habits concentrate the inner spontaneity of forms of life and are more than just the result or effect of repetitions taken in from the external world. Hence, Aristotle's famous description of a stone a stone thrown a thousand times will not develop a habit of throwing itself up. 
No matter how many times I flap my arms, I will not develop the habit of flying. Within the constraints of the habits that I am, habits, though, can ensure that I retain the inclination to be a being that can take up change, that can confront my not yet. And that is why habit remains a type of freedom. Habits are the ways that we can take hold of ourselves, take hold of the changes we have become, and even create something beyond the purposes that we are. And that is a unique thing to think about. What is our purpose beyond purposes? Or what are the ends of human life?